0: Clubroom, Backstage. Anya Schneider is talking to Dave Clark, the Baron of techno, who has always coupled his amazing music with his critical view of the scene.
1: I was already thinking of a sabbatical, and they were saying to me, don't do a sabbatical, it's like sand going through your hands as an artist. As an artist, you always need to do something. Every single interview that I mention John, I'll always say you would not know me, you would not be interviewing me, you would not actually know my name if it wasn't for John Peel. I'm really sure of that because he was always supporting the underdog, he was always supporting the challenging music at the time. Everyone would always get on his tip after he expressed an interest.
0: Welcome to a new episode of the Clubroom Backstage. I'm very honored and pleased and of course a little bit nervous today because of my guest, an artist which I admire since the beginning, which had always a special place in my heart for involving the music and make the techno scene a place which I call home. <laughs> It's the Baron of techno and in his 30 years of career, he always coupled music with his personal politics and his critical view of the scene. We truly need him and it's very important to have such an amazing personality. Welcome Dave Clark.
1: Wow! after an introduction like that, I hope I don't disappoint.
0: (laughs) Absolutely not. I'm really honored. This is really coming from my heart. I was so pleased and so happy when you directly sent me a message. Yes, I'm in. And of course, I would love to talk with you. So I catch you in Amsterdam. How is life lately? huh? (laughs)
1: I just had an afternoon nap. I've been doing that quite a lot in January. Um, I was watching, well, we, we both went out and did some shopping for food and it's cold here. Apparently we're going to get a load of snow next week. So we thought it'd be a good idea just to go out and just get some food for the next week. And I just had an afternoon <laughs> sleep. <laughs> afterwards. Uh, I was watching shark attacks and I fell asleep and I set the alarm for 15 minutes. so I'm going to be a little bit sleepy for the first 10 minutes. I'm sorry.
0: Mm, it's wonderful. But it's it's a really um, hard if you compare it to the old schedule, especially on a Friday afternoon, you know, when you're rushing to the airport and be scheduled for the whole weekend. And I think it's wonderful. And also this this I'm going every night I'm going to sleep at nine, which is like, yeah, amazing. It's, and it's I'm it enjoying
1: is. it. I mean, for the first five or six months uh, on a Friday, I felt this uh, uh, edginess that Uh, something is wrong and I should be doing something or I should be going somewhere. And then now it's like, uh, people say to me, like my neighbors or or the shop will go, Oh, have a great weekend. I go, Oh yes, weekend. I forget now.
0: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. You completely get out of the control, especially for the days. But, um, I, you live in Amsterdam, but how is life especially? I was really surprised because uh, you had a massive protest in the Netherlands last weeks going on. And I was really surprised that this was happening actually in Netherlands because for me, it always seems so quiet and peaceful. And did you see this coming or did you feel it or did you get something about it?
1: It's, it's weird about uh, – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit jokey about this, but it's weird mm-hmm. about the Netherlands because you don't ever seem to get a spontaneous um, – demonstration they have an it's a word called an asplug, uh which yeah. is like an appointment mm-hmm. and they sort of advertised it in advance that there's going to be a demonstration it's not like um when i was in the uk uh, all of a sudden two days boom it's going to happen it's like mm-hmm. no i think in two weeks time we're going to have a demonstration and it's going to be at sunday and it's going to be here, it's going to be, here it's going to be at this place i mean yes of course it's a shock um it's it's not great um but yeah I mean uh, it's I mean for me, the curfew doesn't have that political um, um, sort of stab, um mm-hmm. which obviously the curfew the last time the curfew was in the Netherlands was in the second world War. So mm-hmm. I think there's a little bit of a stab uh, there uh, as you as you say, you're in bed by nine o'clock. I mean, I'm in bed by nine or ten um and and the curfew. Yeah, it's a little bit of a shame at nine o'clock because it means you can't go out uh, for, mm-hmm. for that one walk. You might do once every two weeks or three weeks at 10 mm-hmm. o'clock, um, yeah, yeah. but nothing else is really happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not that worried about it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the news reported it and it happened. And it's, uh, you know, it's about five minutes from my house. Um
0: but everything was peaceful in the end.
1: So. Uh, yeah, I mean, you watch, I watched it on like because we heard loads of helicopters above, and I just watched it on mm. loads of television. Uh, and again, compared to like the violence and 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 I don't want that here, by the way, obviously. But compared to the violence and demonstrations that I've seen mm. in the UK, it's it's people just being upset, and there's a water cannon, and yeah.
0: Yeah, but there's probably a difference between the UK and the Netherlands, which we can talk probably later, because I know that you have like a long-term love affair with Amsterdam uh, because uh, you played your first gig there at Richter. It was in the back of the 90s or early 90s or something. And since then, you already said, I love Amsterdam. And now you live there almost for two decades. And um, I read one of the reasons you claim was that you just couldn't grow anymore in the UK. So probably you were the first one who saw all this Brexit tragedy coming or what was actually the reason? Because, I mean, you were you're born in the UK, Brighton. It was always a really big, important role for your musical career. But I, I couldn't understand this sentence, especially at this time now, of course.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, where I was from, Brighton, I would actually say that the majority of people there are actually very open, Um, probably very pro-European. So I wouldn't say that Brighton itself would be a Brexit paradise. I think Brighton would actually be completely against it or majoritively against it. I mean, Brighton was actually had um, its uh, gay parade, uh, I think three or four years before even Amsterdam. Um, Brighton has been a very uh, liberal place and a very um, uh, forward-thinking place. I mean, it's like one of the first mm-hmm. places to have electricity, provide it for free for, for, for people. I mean, there's lots of things, good things about Brighton. But I, I did see Brexit happening. And I, I again, mm-hmm. I did my famous quoting things in advance on Facebook thing. <laughs> and uh, I, I said it's going to be about 52%, 48% to which or 53 And I was close. Yeah, you were close. But I I was wrong about the percentage of people that were voting. Actually, I think I underestimated it. Um, There were more people that voted, and I knew that it would be a seismic shift between various different places, like London, like Brighton, but also like Scotland. Um, So Brexit itself was wasn't a surprise. It's it's a tragedy. I think it's horrendous. I think it's going to take a very very long time for it to even out. I mean, one of the success stories of Brexit, if I can just, you know, be completely um, level-headed, one of the success stories of probably Brexit is probably the vaccinations. If the vaccinations Mm -hmm. don't give you a third ear or or four eyes, you know, if Mm -hmm. everything goes well with the vaccination, I think it's one of the success stories. But Mm -hmm. that's the only thing that I can think of right now. Yeah. Um, But I couldn't grow in the UK anymore because, I mean, I don't read very much, but there's a journalist, I think, called Alan de Botton, who um, talked about status anxiety, and that was very prevalent in the UK with status anxiety, where you feel you really are part of a class system, Mm. but you're also part of a rat race, and you have to show that you're this part and that you're Mm. successful. And here within the Netherlands, it's much less like that, and I felt that an absolute relief And when you come over here and you feel it's less like that, then you can see the issue because you're outside of the forest. You can see that. Mm -hmm. Um, Culturally, I felt much more alive here Mm -hmm. uh, than I did within the UK because it is a very European uh, hotspot. And also living is – I think it's very important for artists to live close to water. Mm -hmm. Um, But the simple things in life, like – I felt that in the UK that a lot of the buildings um, would be, I think there was a technical term of architecturally impoverished. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you walk around here, there's so much history uh, mm-hmm. and people leave their windows open. You can look in their windows. <laughs> uh, I mean, yesterday, I took a picture of a cat from a window that was inside the, you know, there's there's so much and it's like an open mm-hmm. life and it feels uh, like a privilege to be here. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, And it's very easy to get around before Corona around Europe from here as well. So I mean, I feel feel lucky to be here. Definitely.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. But was it also kind of a musical decision? Because I mean, you were really grounded in the UK sound. There was the skinned relationship to name only one. Uh, But musical wise, it was quite an interesting story in Netherlands, especially also Belgium, where you also were really close and connected to any regrets.
1: Uh, I mean, yes, it was my very, very first European outside-the-UK gig that I ever had 30 years ago, 1990, at Richter's in Regulio Um Musically, as a journalist and, and a DJ, I'd followed what was going on within the Netherlands, um, reviewing them from the beginning of Gabba, Chabba, yeah. um, Speedy Jay, um, all those sort of musicians, Marit Cooper. Um, I was very interested with what was happening within the Netherlands because it had its own sound with stealth. And of course with Saskia who had a label Jack's Upbeats, yeah. <laughs> or we used to call it d back in the day, but now yeah. I understand uh, Jack's Upbeats. Um, the fact that she understood how Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, Detroit, the sound was very, very important and gave actually a chance for more air for those artists to come through. Mm-hmm. And also A lot of the early UK artists like Luke uh, coming through (laughs) on on Jack's Upbeat and other people uh, coming through, it it felt like a a thing. But actually, I never moved here because of the music. Um, Because obviously, uh, you know, people that go to Berlin, they think, oh, I'm going to Berlin because of the music. And it's almost the cliche. Uh, (laughs) Absolutely, I I know. (laughs) It's it's almost like the cliche. and, and, And then there's like, I saw a brilliant meme on Twitmeg, uh, the uh, the worst techno memes ever group page, um, uh, which was uh, clubs are almost open, time to have a haircut, which is like a juk. chook. chook. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost as cliche as that. Mm-hmm. And I never wanted to sort of be part of a musical um, um, neighborhood. I never wanted mm-hmm. that. I used to have this joke. It's like if I ever moved to Berlin, it'd be horrible uh, because I would actually come off the plane, go home, And then go out and get some milk and bump into some DJs. I never wanted that.
0: Everyone is a DJ in Berlin. (laughs) I know. know.
1: Well, I don't think anyone is right now, but yeah. yeah, You're (laughs) right. This is a different story, definitely. And I never really wanted that. I wanted Mm -hmm. to be um, doing my thing and separate. And of course, there's some lovely people in the Netherlands that make music, and it's lovely to see them. There's, um, you know, I was on um, Joachim's chat about, um, the knob twiddlers, he calls it, uh, about yeah. six, seven weeks ago. There's people like Estro, uh, who have booked almost every single year for my event at ADE. And of course it's lovely, but I've never been one of these people that feels the need to be in that musical environment. I actually feel the opposite, which is to surround myself by just people that are just doing different things because that's actually more inspirational mm-hmm. actually. And, keeps you in place.
0: I know what you mean and and what you're talking about. And especially when you are so old and in a status like we both are, I mean it as a compliment. You are not like, you know, hanging together. But also um, quite interesting because talking about Amsterdam, the pandemic and the whole touring life. And of course, everyone knows how long you are doing this. In the beginning, you enjoyed quite a lot the break. And especially I had the same feeling. It was, of course, kind of a shock because your whole life has to t- turn upside down. But then uh, lately you made a post that we're going to have a long winter waiting and it's going to be some dark months. So yeah. um, <laughs> so the view of the future was not so bright like in the beginning because you saw it more like a sabbatical.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: How is it now? How is you feeling? Did it change? Do you still... S-
1: so let's go back to Amsterdam. Let's go back to the sabbatical. Let's go mm-hmm. back to, I was saying that I don't really surround myself by musical people. Um, mm-hmm. So there was like a few older people that I was surrounding myself with at that time, which are artists that either make, work with fashion, uh, who uh, train up uh, Victor and Rolf and people like that, at the Rotterdam mm-hmm. Academy. Mm-hmm. And I was I was already thinking of a sabbatical. And they were saying to me, don't do a sabbatical. It's like sand going through your hands as an artist as an artist you always need to do something Mm -hmm. but anyway it came and the first month pure guilt like i should be working i should be doing something this is really strange but i was fucking exhausted Mm -hmm. um completely because i actually believe i had corona Mm -hmm. um and because i had pneumonia and i was really sick for a long long time and uh, I went back, I did the same thing that I did after my car accident after exit, which is I went back to work fully quicker than I should have. And this was the only thing that I think I could have had, apart from doing that cliche, um, reaching 60, 70 years old, uh, retiring, going on a golf course, and then dying six months later because of the shock. So I was actually, for the first month, very, very um, weirded out, but then had the beautiful weather, and I actually just took it off. And But I saw that with it with 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 europe we had at least the acknowledgement and Mm -hmm. the the beginning of a wave of 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 corona coming at middle of spring with unseasonably good weather Mm -hmm. that it's not going to be great we don't know what we're dealing with so it's going to be a complete lockdown but the lockdown that we're going to go through next winter is always going to be harder. And it hit me as well, even though I could see it. Because mm. the weird thing is, like, sometimes I can see things, like I could see Brexit, and then I still woke up the next morning, saw it on television, and then yeah. was still shocked, even though I saw it. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I put on Facebook, on my personal Facebook, I said, you know, January has absolutely been shit for me. I just mm. have not been creative. I, yeah. I don't feel tired anymore, you know, exhausted. Surely I must be creative if I'm not tired. And I just... Absolutely nothing really creative happened for me this, this month at all.
0: But was there a kind of routine where you're going through this? I mean, I'm going down for a walk every night and explore some places here in Berlin. I never thought that I would do this. So I have some special little tiny things what I'm doing and keeps me alive somehow.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we, with the first lockdown, we went out on my motorbike quite a lot and we explored parts of Amsterdam that I never had the chance to do. Mm-hmm. and it was useful because, like I remember, if you've ever driven around London before GPS mm-hmm. um, and you had your A to Z map on, on, on there, but you'd always shouted it because it was like, oh, fuck it, I'm just going to drive and see what happens. Um, with, with driving around London without a GPS or a, a map, you basically put all the pieces together through trial and error, so you would link uh, mm-hmm. going through Croydon to get through to Brixton to mm-hmm. go through to... You would put them all together, and sometimes you would take a wrong turn and Mm -hmm. you'd end up, I don't know, somewhere else, and you'd actually explore trying to find your way out of there to get back. Mm -hmm. But you put it all together, and then you would have this mental map of London in your mind. Mm -hmm. And and actually, the same happened with Amsterdam. Um, Just driving around, oh, this is how this links together, this is how that links together. Oh, there's a park (laughs) here. Oh, there's something really interesting. It's like, Oh, we can pretend we're in iceland in this particular place because it's very like a harbor and it's very industrial and it smells weird <laughs> and, and, and a lot of these things were happening and that was great and yeah i mean we still do that as for the walking um i have to say that um i'm very strict with with corona uh, because mm. i um I've, I've had chronic asthma for my whole life um and actually living here has been a lot better, but I, I'm very strict with it. So mm-hmm. if I see friends, um, unless it was in the summer, and even then not that often, it would always be outside. Mm-hmm. And that's actually quite healthy, although it gets a bit boring sometimes. Um, <laughs> and you feel like it, it's a bit strange. But I would see friends and mm-hmm. uh, I would go for long walks with, with different friends, like maybe four or five hours. and Yeah, that's and, it, and it's been good. And it's really funny because the, you know the people that wear these um, things that go on how many steps they're doing, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> I do. First of all, those people are normally very, very anti-technology. And like, <laughs> oh, I think I'm being spied upon. But then they've got like a GPS tracker, how many steps they're doing, which is fine. Uh, <laughs> and the funny thing is like, oh, how many steps have you done? I said, so, I don't fucking know. I don't really care. It's like I walk a lot. <laughs> I don't really care. It's like, and then they're the ones that are proudly proclaiming they've done 10,000 steps. It's brilliant. And yes. then after, an, after an hour and a half of walking, they're the ones that are tired. <laughs> I know
0: what you're talking about. <laughs>
1: they're exhausted after an hour and a half worth, worth of walking. You're thinking, oh, so obviously 10,000 steps actually isn't very much. Really.
0: Yeah, I know. um but, but, uh... In between this time, I mean, there's one thing you still carry on and which is quite important is you're doing still your radio show, White Noise. You did Mm -hmm. a lot of streams still. You are still on there. So how important is it actually for you and even for your listeners to carry on and to go through this time together? Did you feel a different response? I mean, you're doing radio since 20 years. You have like more than 600 episodes you have on every regular stations, your show. Did you feel a different vibe at the moment?
1: Um, first of all, I was really grateful for having some structure retained because Mm -hmm. I think if I would have lost that structure, um, I think something would have happened to me mentally, not in a bad way, but I would have been a little bit more off kilter, but because I had that structure to still maintain, I was really grateful for that. Um, it's actually almost approaching 800, uh, additions now,
0: um,
1: which is, which is mind blowing. And, but weirdly enough, I was in. Island, uh, because one of the central stations of, of White Noise that's been um, uh, transmitting it for such a mm-hmm. long time is Two FM in Ireland. And I was over there, and I was uh, doing a gig over there. But I always went for my Christmas curry uh, with with the with the guys from Two FM, mm-hmm. and we spoke, and they said, "Well, have you thought about doing another radio show mm-hmm. um as well as White Noise?" Because we know, because every now and then I will go over to Ireland. Sadly, I don't think I'm going to make it for the 800th edition. But every now and then I will go to Ireland and maybe do the 600 edition or the 500th edition Mm -hmm. live and then they would give me another three hours and I would play everything in between after Mm -hmm. the first two hours with like David Essex Mm -hmm. to uh, everything and they know that my musical taste is wide and they said would you like to do another radio show and I said I absolutely would love to do another radio show and that was called The Saga which is still going and that was going to be once a month I was going to replicate the sort of 90-hour playlist that I did for myself when uh, we were driving around uh, Iceland Um, because Iceland is a favorite place of mine and it came on there. And then I said, I think in month three of the pandemic, I said, would you mind if I go once every two weeks? So I've also been in the saga Mm -hmm. as well. But what surprised me actually about let's go back to white noise is that the amount of music that is still coming through, Mm -hmm. um, and the quality of the music that's still coming through Mm -hmm. is really, really good. So I actually felt that not only was it important for me But it's also obviously important for the people that listen, but it's also very, very important for the artists Mm -hmm. because they're not going to get their music out there at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think deep down they will know that unless they create something that is an incredible diamond, Mm -hmm. that their music will probably never see a dance floor unless Mm -hmm. they play it themselves um, in a year or two's time. And so the other thing that I wanted to do was to make sure that all the music that I was playing, that was making it onto white noise that was strong, Mm -hmm. that if I was going to do a live stream for uh, like a festival or a charity, Mm -hmm. that I would feature that music there as well. Just Mm -hmm. 95% new music, because it was really important to do that. And I made that choice back in April, I think last year, April Mm -hmm. or May. Um, But the music has been astounding. um, And, you know that you're pe- picking up people's spirits,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's that's really really important. And it kept me it kept me having a structure, which my structure always was listening to the music once a week or once every two weeks, yeah. filing it, putting it away, and then going through it. And I think sometimes I was like, "Oh, I've got to do this." And you, you sit here, and I, I get maybe three to four hundred pieces of music to listen to every sort of week, week and a half. And of course, I, I. I listen to everything and if something grabs my ear I I do it all the time and and now it felt like almost a community service as well. That was good.
0: Yeah, this is quite interesting and everyone who is listening to White Noise or see your streams can hear this and everyone knows that you are like a champion for unsigned artists, new music, So, um, so you're really specialized in this but can you feel there's a different attitude, energy of these new producers, especially of this new generation because sometimes I just signed for example, an act, he was, they were both 20 years and they came to me and I felt a completely different energy than I felt back in the days. So even, can you feel this and, and how you, um, how you would describe this, especially to the old ones they are already on the scene and get played everywhere?
1: I think, I think the difference is obviously with us being the age that we are and the history that we have, um, when we started off, A, there was a lot less of the music that we wanted to play B, it was much more difficult to find and C, no matter what gender you were, no one really took you that seriously at the beginning. It's like DJ, uh, te- techno, you know, and of course techno would always come in with the no, no limits sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Oh, that's techno. Is it? Oh, it's pretty shit. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, so no one would really take you seriously, but because of the scene that we've all grown up with has created this, uh, bubble where people can actually be much more straightforward, much more adventurous Mm -hmm. immediately and then get support. I think that's where the energy changed, um, where, you know, someone could actually be quite abrasive or very, very challenging with their production instantly. And if it works for everyone else that everyone's on it and everyone's there. And I think that's a big difference. Um, as for people, I've always separated music from people. Um, and sometimes I've even fallen out with uh, like some people. Like when I was um, playing with the CDJs back in the very, very beginning, someone put me down very, very heavily for that. And I thought, oh, you wanker. But the music they made, I still like. So I've always separated music from the people.
0: Which is good, and which is rare, actually.
1: <laughs> well, you ha- I think you have, uh, of course, unless someone is a mass murderer or doing other horrible things in the scene, which obviously is happening right now, I then know. of course that, that makes it, you can't separate that at all. It's the same as Kate Bush um, re-editing her, one of her albums and getting rid of Rolf Harris, which you mm-hmm. completely understand because you don't want someone that has done that on, on pressings that. of your records. And that, I think that's a very good way of doing it. Um, but generally, if you have a personal disagreement with someone or... You know, you're not really into their lifestyle choices of, you know, being on Instagram and being weird. But the music is good. Okay, the music is good. It's fine. It's, It's enough for me.
0: What um, are you thinking about all these 90 revivals, especially, I mean, your first record was done 92? Yeah? No?
1: No, I think it was 89 or 90 actually.
0: Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <Well, laughs> but what do you think? I mean, I've been through the nineties, I heard all this music and I just feel now there's a revival of all these new techno DJs playing all these nineties, t- sometimes a lot of Euro trash bag. So I can't really understand this hype. What do you think about this?
1: Okay, I, I've sort of said this once before is, um, you know, if you were lucky enough to have a parent that had very, very good musical taste, mm-hmm. uh, and I inherited one of my parents 12 inches of the disco mm-hmm. period. Yes. The amount of joy that I got playing those records that were quite obscure or a bit weird, like Lonnie, Listen, Smith, Roy mm-hmm. Ayers, Crusaders, yes. The Whispers, anything, you know.
0: Especially as a young kid, Well. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then you're dropping that 10 years or 12 years later Mm -hmm. in a club. And then the crowd are going, wow, this kid really knows their cookies. Mm -hmm. And you're feeling that and you're actually getting the excitement of the the little dancing that you were doing when you were a kid in your living room or in your bedroom. (laughs) And then these records actually then expand outwards to the people that are in the crowd. Then I I can't put down that if, if some of these young producers... Uh, now or DJ, so let's 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 be honest. If some of these young DJs now are playing their mum or dad's sort of mm-hmm. style of records, or in in fact maybe their records themselves, and getting that same enjoyment because it's what we grew up with, it's what we learned,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's how we formulated who we were. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I never liked trance. And if people want to play trance, that's their thing. But I'm not going to go great choice i'm just going to go and to another room it's not my thing but if people are playing early techno it's good but i what i hope is is because obviously um when i was younger i would also look into who did these pieces of music who produced these pieces of music yeah if they don't understand that also techno especially of that that period was highly politicized and very political and who is producing it and they disown that part. I think that's a missed opportunity, actually.
0: Mm-hmm. But actually, if you look now into techno and uh, the explosion of popularity, what techno is now, I mean, the last over the last 10 years, it was like really, really massive. But do you think it's a positive thing for a scene? We called ourselves always like underground and being proud of it because it's not underground anymore, if I look to it. No,
1: no it's not. It's, uh, it's not even... Um it's not even a movement it's uh commercialization now um and i i completely understand i mean it's commercialization is never good for any particular musical genre um, it's and the crowd that are now into the, again i always do the whole thing of like When I was playing techno and when I was going to house and acid house parties and playing acid house, Mm -hmm. you would go there with all the weird people from different schools that had similar experiences that you had, which is like you weren't really part of the group, but you were outside the group. And then you would all meet other outsiders. It's a little bit like a Nick Hornsby um, um, um book, you know, high fidelity. It's a little bit like that where you're all these outsiders that come together, and then you're a bigger group of outsiders, mm-hmm. but you're still a little bit weird and, and, and wonderful. And, and you're actually, again, from uh, a very politically aware background, um, normally uh, very aware of racial inequality, um, very aware of, of bad politics at that time being apartheid, and actually being quite vocal about it. And you'd all be linking together like that. And now because there's no political – so you you sadly see that even when a magazine feed tries to be political uh, and actually puts it on the Facebook that the amount of brain dead at best or abusive messages that come through at worst that are there shows the demographic where the word techno now attracts and that's and, and uh, the way that i've seen yeah and the way that i've seen this translate is actually it was really from the beginning of minimal
0: mm. when
1: minimal then became much more about marketing and much less about music uh, mm. and anything else and then all of a sudden everyone started wearing black again which i'd already been doing for 10 15 years later because <laughs> travelling in black is just so much easier than travelling in other things that need washing Um, So you travel in black all the time. And then all of a sudden the marketing came through and then the product whitewashed the black influence that had been around um, by people that actually I feel should have known better considering where they lived and who they looked up to. Mm
0: -hmm. And they,
1: it took that away. So that was wave A, the beginning of the destruction of what we love Mm -hmm. as what we call techno. That was wave A um and then wave b came along which was uh business techno and mm-hmm. uh, wave b came along again i predicted this i said when edm is going to um uh, sound like a, a farting balloon and deflate then the managers and the way that the managers have extracted money from uh, the sfx model uh, are going to do that with the techno artists and then mm-hmm. because some of the techno artists were specifically only about ego and only about money. Mm -hmm. They didn't really care anymore. Mm -hmm. That was inevitably also going to bring down the level of what techno meant to the real true hardcore people of what techno is and brought it down again. And, yes, it expanded the audience base, and you can be accused of complete snobbery by saying that's not what we want. You can't control that. But when you expand the audience base, then you're not going to get the same quality that you had before, but then before, there was also bad things that were attached to it, which was complete snobbery. Mm-hmm. Uh, whenever you walked into a record shop, um, yeah. as a guy or as a woman, <laughs> if you—I mean, I was watching. Uh, I, I love the fact that sometimes I'll put on um, my Facebook, and all of a sudden, uh, Susanna Electric Indigo just mm-hmm. pops up on my feed. I, I just love that. And then, so uh, actually, two days ago, I think she was on doing an interview, mm-hmm. and she said that she used to work at Hardwax.
0: Hardwax, I remember this. (laughs) And she said that even
1: like if anyone asked the wrong question in Hardwax, you'd be be given a hard time, shown the red card, show the door.
0: I know. (laughs) I was scared to go to Hardwax to buy my records there back in the days. It was really like a big thing for me.
1: (laughs) And and, and obviously that was not just the Hardwax thing. That was also replicated probably before in the UK and actually I worked in a record shop yeah. and I knew that the only way to actually get uh the the uh the really good vinyl before anyone else unless you're on a mailing list was to actually to work in the record shop
0: absolutely <laughs> and that's
1: why I still have my uh green vinyl copy of mm. uh there is no planet earth um yeah. by by Dan and Claude um and, and because it was like Fuck it, I'm having this, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why I still had some of my rare pressings of of Reese uh, Funky Funk Funk because it's like yes, we got there in advance, mm-hmm. um, but those things had some elements of bad. But the gatekeeping wasn't pleasant to go through, but it did safeguard the music. Yeah. But you can't do that. You can't do that with digital because digital. No. Digital was also the catalyst that enabled marketing to then become more important than the actual content.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. And I know also I remember back in the days when I went to the record shop, when I had a good relationship to my record shop dealer, he gave me the right records sometimes. And he brought me to a special way, which I probably not find by myself. So it was quite, for me, a really important time.
1: I found, I found, a, really, I found a really good way of even jumping ahead of being working in a record shop. Mm. And that was actually for writing for magazines, doing reviews because then you even got it before the record. Before shop. The record. And that was brilliant. And actually, to be fair uh, to, to Curtis and, and Relief Records, mm-hmm. I would get everything way in advance, and not just everything way in advance, but in this amazing, like, colored vinyl that never even existed, mm-hmm. apart from maybe 30 or 40 copies. So I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, really cool. yeah, of
0: course. But uh, coming back to the commercial uh, discussion, we spoke a little bit. Um, I mean, I have different as I have a really diverse opinion about it. I sometimes like it. I sometimes don't, but on the other hand, you also, you brought techno actually to the Tomorrowland. You were the first one who presented, you had an own stage. I mean, there was even no one talking about techno. It was like this little scene there, you know, we were called crazy, but, but are you playing there anymore or still? No.
1: Um, what happened was, see this is, I have a, have a few decisions that I've regretted um one of the decisions that I regretted and it's not actually against the artist himself it was basically about what the artist stood for and that was actually remixing Moby I when I look back on that even though the track itself is okay it's like I shouldn't have done that it wasn't really something that has done very good things for me it wasn't something you know if it would have been an early Moby production like UHF or something like that that would have been interesting but he was very commercial at a And actually I shouldn't have touched it. It wasn't of interest to me. And I've always regretted that. And it's not against the person himself. I want to be clear on that mm-hmm. with faithless. I had to do a remix of faithless. Yeah. Um, but that was the only way that I could have got out of, um, a recording commitment, uh, to a record label. And the reason why I did that was, and again, I've, I've sat next to Rollo on the plane. And I found him an absolutely decent guy, um, nothing against Rollo, nothing against Faithless, but I wouldn't have touched Faithless. Mm-hmm. And then I left what, uh, what we call an Easter egg within the track of Faithless, mm-hmm. which is at the end I actually then edit some of the vocals, and I actually goes, this is the record that writes all my wrongs. So actually within Faithless there's, this is the record that writes all my wrongs. Okay. It's like a little note that goes, mm-hmm. okay. And I did the best job that I could in wow. it, and actually, a lot of people like that remix, so it's, it's okay. But I shouldn't have done that. But back onto Tomorrowland because I'm not going to avoid it, so don't worry. But back onto Tomorrowland is like they'd been asking me to be on Tomorrowland for so many years, mm-hmm. right? Really, they'd be trying person A, person B to to try and get me onto Tomorrowland, and I just didn't want to because this whole EDM commercial stuff disgusted me, it still does. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I see that. Fucking idiot, Timmy Trumpet on stage. I, I i really want to mute that trumpet with my fist. Uh, I really do not like w- mm-hmm. whatever the fuck they're doing. And then when I see the other guy, I think his name is Serge or whatever, um, who's basically dancing with his ass <laughs> out. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> um, like fuck me, this is just horrendous. And I was asked to play on the main stage um, uh, with with another artist, and I, I refused to because I felt that if I crossed that line, mm-hmm. then that line then becomes only about me, my ego and selling out the music. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to go there, but I did make a mistake with Tomorrowland. Um, and again, I have to say that the people that I work with at Tomorrowland were really, uh, lovely to work with, utterly professional. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they gave me 85% carte blanche on what I wanted to book. Wow. Um, mm-hmm.
0: And it was, which year was it actually, when you started the Tomorrowland stage? It was quite…
1: Which year? Um, I'm not sure it was, I've, I've, everyone, like everyone in this industry, we've lost a year and a half now. Um, yeah. I think it was about nine years ago, I think. Uh, yeah,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: And I never felt comfortable being on the stage with mm-hmm. fucking butterflies and fountains and all that sort of stuff around me. I never felt comfortable, but what I did feel comfortable was that I could book Jeff Mills, mm-hmm. uh, I could book Chris Liebing, I could book, um, Ben clock.
0: Mm-hmm. I could
1: book green velvet. I could book everyone that I wanted to within, within reason. And occasionally I would have an artist that they would suggest that I was not completely okay with, but it was still for me enough to get everything through the door. Because you always have to compromise. There's always an element of compromise. Mm-hmm. Even for someone that doesn't compromise like me, at some points there is an element of compromise. Mm-hmm. And you always feel uncomfortable because you feel shit. But I, ironically, I would have the shit sort of taken out of me, the piss taken out of me by one promoter in, in the Netherlands. Like, what the fuck are you doing here? And then they want to come along to the gig with you. Mm-hmm. And then, what are you doing in this place? And then the way that the scene progressed which i could then start seeing was going to happen was actually the difference between this promoter in the netherlands mm. and the lineup in tomorrowlands was maybe a 20% difference mm. there wasn't actually that much difference anymore mm. and i felt that if i was given my own environment and own space which you have to take as actually is a privilege it's it's, it's, it's a privilege to be to be given that yeah absolutely um And and they gave it to me, and I thought, okay, I'm away. The environment that I'm in is safety protected because Mm -hmm. the music that I have on stage is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, I can live with that. It's okay. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I did that MixMag interview where I, I did a walk around with my hood, um, mm-hmm. going around looking at the other stages going, oh, Jesus fucking Christ, this is awful. <laughs> um, and they still put me after that. So they allowed me even to have my own Critics. opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they, it's not that bad. But then all of a sudden, the business techno thing came like mm-hmm. I predicted it would. And then actually, what place methodically, um, ideologically, did I have here anymore? And I couldn't, for the last few years, I couldn't really justify it. And I wasn't that happy backstage anymore. And I was thinking, oh, this is going to be the last year I do it, I think. And then I managed to actually put it together with one of the clubs that um, I really, really uh, had a long relationship with, with, which was Fuse. Mm-hmm. and uh, I, I rebuffed uh, the office to play on the main stage with another artist back-to-back. I didn't want to do that, and I said, listen, can I go back-to-back with Fuse and do it in a tent? So, therefore, I didn't have the fucking uh, butterflies, mm-hmm. the, the, the multicolored Just, yeah. unicorn yeah. fucking fountains floating off everywhere, but I had it in a dark tent with great lights, and mm-hmm. it was okay. But again, the way that the scene was moving was like all the people that gave you a hard time for actually having that tent wanted to be at Tomorrowland anyway um, and calling you commercial. And it was starting to go that way for me and I felt uncomfortable, but they're the ones that actually really wanted to be commercial. So yeah, I hope hope that explains it.
0: Yeah, I think so. I understood. But actually also the whole case with the business techno and, and where the scene is going, maybe the pandemic this is the only good thing on the pandemic that is maybe clearing up the scene a little bit uh, because everyone nah, do we think it's just a hope no it's not okay oh, right. okay got it you don't have to say anything no i, I, I don't <laughs> think it's uh, uh,
1: obviously that's the dream that everyone that had any credibility wanted it was like thank fuck we can finally do away with these people that play for oligarchs in russia um, that actually play play graves. We can get rid of these people that the only interest they have is about their own narcissism, their own presentation on stage and their financial gain. But I can almost tell you now instinctively that if we come back this year at the end of this year, which I'm not I'm not sure is very likely, mm-hmm. but I think maybe clubs will start to run, so that's okay. Mm-hmm. But if the festivals were to come back um, and get the lineups that they've already booked uh, from two years ago, this year, if that was to happen, next year would be ultra-commercial. Mm. Really? Ultra-commercial. And the reason why for that is is the amount of risks that any promoter doing those kind of events would want to take because they feel they've lost money. Mm. Um, they're going to want to go straight back in there mm. harder, more based on fake demographics than ever before. Um, so, yes, of course, we, we sort of want those sort of organisations to self implode, obviously not the people that do backline, not the people that do the sound, mm. not the people that actually are the hardworking um, people that make us all look like stars when we're on one stage. We don't want them to go through pain, but we want the organisations to change. But yeah. I, I don't see that happening. And actually, the longer this goes on, the more damage I see happening to the clubs because they're the ones that suffering that aren't getting the support. Um And if they go, if like, say, for example, Mm Razmataz in Barcelona goes, if Fabric in London goes, if the Rex in Paris goes, if the Fuse in Brussels goes, and all these other credible clubs, Mm -hmm. because obviously I'm naming the ones that I've played at, but there's also many that I haven't, that are Mm -hmm. also credible and very important. If these clubs disappear, or worse still, get bought up by the people that actually have the bigger organisations The choice that's going to come through is actually going to be less. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That's what concerns me. That's what concerns me. And of course, everyone's talking about illegal raves as if this is the beginning of a scene. But the sad thing about the illegal rave is that when illegal raves were happening when we we were growing up, it was only about the music.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) It's the difference. (laughs) Yeah, but do you think the music will change maybe?
1: If this drags on, then yes. If this goes to the Financial Times um, predictions of that we're going to be fighting Corona from between four and seven years from this point, Mm. then the whole world is going to change. Yeah. Um, this, you know, I mean, obviously we're very music-centric, but the whole world is going to change. I mean, athletics will change, um, uh, classical will change, um, fashion will change, art will change, everything will change. And... Change is never a bad thing, of course, um, but it's always a bad thing if you are the ones that are caught in the middle of it. Say, like, for example, the Industrial Revolution, if you're before then and then the change happens and you're slaughtered, then it's not a great thing. But change generally is not a bad thing. Change generally is necessary for human uh, evolution. But sometimes people get caught in that and they can't change.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about something positive because, beside of your all your music productions, tracks that are timeless and your career, you are now really established as a photographer. I'm really you. Catched me I again. Would I wouldn't <laughs> say established. <laughs> no, yeah, no, but you know. catched me. So I, I was even thinking, and I saw some portraits what you did for um, from other artists. So how important is this for you? How what are you going to do with it? I seem to have
1: inherited all the technical loves <laughs> from my father. Um, I didn't have a close relationship with my father just because the way my family uh, was 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 acting, um, which is a sad thing, but it's okay. Um, and he passed away a long time ago. And my father was the technical uh, person in there. He was the one putting speakers, car speakers, in the in the bathroom um, in the seventies, so you could actually listen to the radio through a spring reverb. And his
0: great music taste,
1: huh? <laughs> no, he didn't have good music taste. He had no, the it wasn't music him. Taste. He had the worst music taste. He would listen to James Last. I mean that
0: that's Oh no. That, I know. Yes, that,
1: that's how <laughs> it's bad it German, is. German
0: it's German, James Last. I know, you know it, I know. <laughs> <laughs> actually
1: I, honestly I've always thought that James Last and, and Helmut Geyer mm-hmm. actually look very similar. If you actually if there's Now that
0: you say it, actually, this is fantastic. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, But he did like classical music, um, Mm -hmm. which I did take from and I learned from. um, And that was okay. No, it was my mother that actually had the disco taste in music. My father father had um, all the – he had record decks, he had reel-to-reel. And he was also into photography. Ah, See? And – I would carry around his bloody flight case of all his bloody lenses for whatever reason, and get really annoyed, like concentrate on the moment. Father live the life. No, I need to change the lens. I need to do this. Um, and I, I, I used to resent it a little bit, but he gave me his camera to borrow. And which is a big thing as a kid, if you're walking around with a Minolta camera and, um, special two specialized lenses as a kid, that's, Quite a bloody big responsibility for walking around with and so he lent me his camera and i took okay. photos which i don't have any of because it's such a long time ago but i had that love and then unfortunately uh, i had to sell the camera that that he gave me with the lenses that he gave me for food because uh, i wasn't earning any money um, because we all know how difficult it was when we all started. It was you had to make choices. Is what's it gonna be? Is it gonna be photography? Well, I can't afford the film, or is it gonna be vinyl, which actually has a long yeah. longevity and you can do something with? So mm-hmm. I chose the vinyl. Um so I had to and the food. Um and I had to sell the camera. But all these things actually came from my father, which I'm really glad about. So um and also, I've been very lucky within my own career of actually being in front of, and I've never been a very comfortable person in front of the camera at all, um, but actually being in front of the camera of some great photographers. I mean, some really, really good photographers. And so I was always asking them questions. Mm-hmm. What does this do? What does that do? How are you working this? One? Mm-hmm. Always learning and how they place people and what they were doing with with light and, and so I mean, like one of the early photo shoots that James Barton arranged for me was with a guy called Rankin, who's actually super famous now. And mm-hmm. I was learning from him. He at that time was taking pictures of Madonna, taking pictures of the Queen of England. I'm a Republican, but still, it shows where where he uh, was. Where, where, where I was going. And I've had other ones like um, another guy came up, Martin Goodacres. He I, I saw his uh, images of me on Getty out the blue, and. Mm-hmm. And I learned from that, and I was like, oh, I wonder what lens he was using. It looks like a you know, 24 or 28, and he tells me it was a 28 possibly. And I learned from these people, um, and then I had a passion for actually choosing the photographer that I wanted to work with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and uh, I uh, went out with someone for a little while, and they showed me what you could actually do on the iPhone with, with the camera and how you can edit, which I wasn't really – that bothered about because I wasn't one of these Instagram people yeah, like, yeah. Hey, look at me. I'm so <laughs> handsome and all that shit. Um, but the actual editing within the phone, I wasn't really aware of. I wasn't really that bothered of. And mm-hmm. then I was, Oh, this is really cool. And then, uh, I was hanging around Paris for a while. And then I actually met a great photographer called Marilyn.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and again, learned how she worked. Mm-hmm. and the vibe of my very last photo shoot, which is really, really interesting. Um, back to the days of vinyl, I bought, uh, I was a big fan of the Sparks, and I bought mm-hmm. uh, one of their albums, um, Terminal Drive, and it had uh, the Mal Brothers, which I luckily interviewed once as well, um, um, with a photo. And I loved that photo, and, and sadly I had to sell that record for food as well, but it got reissued. And so I bought the reissue. And of course, when you have a piece of vinyl, all the information's on it, right? Yeah, yeah. And it said who the photographer was. And then so I just sent a direct message by Instagram would you mind, are you available for photos? And we got no, it sorted. No. And then I found out that he was the guy that did all the amazing photos, the very famous photos of Jimi Hendrix, the Rolling Stones. Really, and again, yeah. I was talking to him, trying to learn, listen. He, uh, and I said I wanted a medium format. I wanted to use Hasselblad. And, yeah, um, and actually back in the day, I wanted to have my photo taken by Helena Christensen because I saw a documentary oh, yeah, yeah. of her using Lomo cameras, yes. mm-hmm.
0: um,
1: but, but my girlfriend at the time wouldn't allow me to, which <laughs> wow. is really weird. I mean, look at my face. I mean, what, what's Helena? <laughs> being, <laughs>
0: what's she going to
1: do with me? You know, it's like, yeah, I, I did wear leather trousers for a little while, but that's about as interesting as it probably gets <laughs> for Helena, right? Um, so I was learning and learning and learning, putting it all together. And then a few years ago, I just took the dive or the camera and of course, I did the beginner's thing. I bought the camera that I thought looked the best, right? Mm-hmm. And so I bought a camera that looked the best and actually I never really got on with it and almost lost the interest, but then kept going through with it, part exchanged it. And then, then it all began. Then it all started. Then I started to feel where I was heading, trying to get a, um, a, a direction in my mind of where I wanted to be. And I've always been fascinated by black and white. Um, so much so that when I actually watched the documentary on Platon, um, I had tears coming down my eyes when he was explaining what black and white meant to him, because that's what it meant to me. Um, both as someone that's actually had their photo taken in black and white, but actually then someone that's embarking on photo- photographic, hopefully photographic career. Um, so I, I felt black and white very, very intensely. And now I feel like I definitely am getting somewhere and I'm hoping to get somewhere and sadly my, my business model was to take photos of artists, um, because I've been in that environment, both as an artist, just standing there, having my photo taken, but also as an artist in the environment of work, which is either in the studio or in the, in the club. So I know what's going on. I know when the moment's going to happen. I know what, the artist is trying to do and how to capture that moment when it's going to happen. Mm. So I felt, this is great. I'm actually going to go from there to there and then take photos of artists. And and then like the first proper photo shoot that I did was with Joseph Capriati. Mm. Yes. And, and then I got the cover of billboard magazine, the cover of uh, DJ uh, magazine in Spain or Italy, I think it was.
0: Mm. And I felt
1: we're we're going somewhere. And then Corona went, no, you're not going anywhere. You're going nowhere. It's fucked up. You're, You're done here and um which is a shame but actually yesterday i had an offer from a french um art gallery that they're interested in my works so i
0: was thinking that you have to do an exhibition or maybe release a book or something i mean you must have a lot of
1: i was supposed to do an exhibition here uh during ade 2020 um
0: yeah I mean you can always i mean it's it's easier to open up an exhibition than a club right now or to make <laughs> <That's> it <true. laughs> so if you can think about it, Dave we spoke already almost for an hour, but there is something I completely forgot, and I'm really jealous, and I have to talk with you about it because I'm also in the radio since twenty years, and my biggest idol is of course John Peel, and you were the only one I know now you you were in his show, you recorded a live session and you got also released on the legendary John Peel session. I just have to know how he was, how, how this was for you, how he influenced you. Because for me, it's, it was, it's God.
1: (laughs) Every single interview that I mentioned, John, I'll always say you would not know me. You would not be interviewing me. You would not actually know my name if it wasn't for John Peel. I'm really sure of that. Um, because he was always supporting the underdog. He was always supporting the challenging music at the time, which no one, no one really was. Everyone would always get on his tip after he expressed an interest. Mm-hmm. So you'd have the the wannabes um, after John Peel playing what John Peel played three or four weeks ago afterwards,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: they wouldn't seek that themselves or understand how to get there. Mm-hmm. So the fact that John Peel did it, and I have so many John Peel stories like Uh, Obviously, for a while, I was um, DJing here on VPRO uh, 3FM in in the Netherlands with White Noise, and we had access to um, some of the real to real uh, radio shows. Mm -hmm. And John also used to broadcast for VPRO for a little while. Yeah, and I felt one of the most important things I need to do was to celebrate his life uh, on the anniversary of his um, death. So I, I did that and then we found one of the reel to We had it baked in the oven so that we could actually take it off. And his music choice was like
0: everywhere. Yeah, always.
1: And, but the hip hop and the electro that he played was so spot on. It was incredible. It was like Knights of the Turntable. I was like, John Pills just fucking played Knights of the Turntable. It, this is mind blowing that he was always there. So for me, with, with John, I was quite late onto John Peel because, you know, I was from the south of England, yes. and whilst he was on Radio 1, he was a northern guy. and mm-hmm. um, It wasn't uh, east-west Berlin, mm-hmm. but it, it was, mm-hmm. except we could cross the border. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'd all be a bit confused when we saw Birmingham and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and south, because mm-hmm. Birmingham, for me, was the north. Um, so we're all a bit confused by this. So, what happened? Actually, my first radio person that <laughs> influenced me is not so cool. Was Kenny Everett, which you probably mm-hmm. never heard I don't of. Know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kenny Everett was just like a comedian, like really mm-hmm. funny. What he was doing with this technology. The second uh, radio hero of mine was Mike Allen, who mm-hmm. was doing uh, loads of hip hop, and he would be uh, working together with Red Alert in New York, getting all the information about what's going on with Roxanne, Roxanne, and all that sort of stuff. And then John came into my life, probably from the age of 14, 15. And I would listen. And it was always with the romantic crackle of radio, right? Mm-hmm. You can't underestimate that romantic crackle mm-hmm. of radio. Yeah, yeah. The signal going in, the signal going out. Can I stay tuned? Is it going to stay tuned enough for me to actually be able to listen to what the track is actually called? Yeah. Um, so, and then I was listening to John and it was like, wow, there is a world out there which is mm-hmm. so interesting musically. And then I uh, sent off the, the music to John, not expecting anything, and then he was playing it. I was like, holy shit, this is this is mind-blowing. Yeah. And at that time, I had two amazing pieces of technology. One was a secondhand green light fax machine, um, and the first fax that came through there was from Riley Reinhold. Mm. um
0: Ach, yeah that's from cologne
1: yeah um uh, of reviewing a magnetic north uh, record yeah. i think it was for maybe groove magazine or something else i can't remember and then the second piece of technology that i had at that time was a answering machine and john pill left a message no on the answering machine wow and i was really mind blown because i actually already edited the tape well, on the, on the on the answering machine. So I actually had, uh, like, I'd actually uh, edited Laurie Anderson for my Superman. It's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. please start talking at the sound of the tone, bub, yeah. Bob And then I have BDP going in there. Yeah. <laughs> and then John left a message after that, and it's like, fuck, this is mind-blowing. This is incredible. So I then recorded that message, obviously, into my sampler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I said, would you mind leaving me a message for my radio show? Because at that time... I was doing uh, a once-a-year radio show for four weeks, mm-hmm. uh, once a week, um, for, called Festival Radio. Mm-hmm. And he called me the Baron of Techno. And that's how it started. He actually called me the Red Baron of Techno, but that's yes. German. Yeah. And so I became the Baron of Techno. And, yeah.
0: Yeah, wonderful. What a nice story. Okay, um, Dave. Thank you very much for being in the show. And and we almost talked for an hour. This was wonderful and so interesting. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So Thank you for asking me. Yeah. And I hope uh, we're going to see each other live one day. And if I ever come to Amsterdam, I'm going to say hello and we're going to have a tea together. This would be really nice. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Room backstage. Produced at Blackout Studios.